some good evening you know, friends. Thank, please join us for Bible study in a church setting. They talk together the word of the Lord. And came to pass that while they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have? My name is William McLaughlin as an anchor, and Doug as a Bible scholar. Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Now that same day referred to in verse 13, that was resurrection day. Arguably the greatest day of celebration the world has ever known. But these two followers of Christ weren't celebrating at all. They were in very deep sorrow. We only know one of their names, Cleopas, and there's varying theories as to who the other one was. Maybe Luke himself, since Luke wrote the book, or maybe Cleopas' wife, we just don't know. But for whatever reason, they were walking to this village of Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And then the risen Christ comes up the road, joins the conversation. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, you can see what the problem really was here. Jesus had been crucified three days before, and the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee had bought and prepared the very expensive spices and things to give Jesus a proper Jewish burial. But they waited till the Sabbath day was over, of course. They waited till Sunday morning to come to the tomb, and of course when they got there, he wasn't there. But the angels were there and announced to him that he was, he was risen. Expositor's Bible notes that the very fact that they went to the great expense and, and the great effort of all this preparation for his burial shows us they didn't really believe that he was going to rise from the dead. The problem was unbelief. And so these two people on the Emmaus Road were devastated by what had happened. It's interesting, though, in their great sorrow, Jesus still came to them. Matthew Henry says this, Christ's disciples are often sad and sorrowful, even when they have reason to rejoice. For through weakness of their faith, they cannot take the comfort offered to them. Though Christ has entered into his state of exaltation, yet he notices the sorrows of his disciples and is afflicted in their afflictions. We know that he made several appearances like this to the disciples to marry to others after this same fashion. Even when he finds us in unbelief, the Lord's great big heart still feels the sorrow that we feel, and he still responds. And so, still not recognizing Jesus, they continue their story. Look, verse 22. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here we see these two people had, had heard the account of the women that saw the angels at the tomb, yet they just couldn't believe it. Now, we know that this particular story has a happy ending. Jesus does go on. He teaches them about the prophecies about him, and no doubt he brought them right up to the very moment where they were in the fulfillment of them. And then they sat down 
He goes on to say they sat down and ate dinner, and then Jesus revealed himself to him. So though they really know now that he's alive. But we want to notice something for our study tonight. In verse 21, they say this, but we trusted that it had, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. This is why they were so troubled. They thought Jesus was the one, the Messiah, that had been predicted by Moses and pretty much every other prophet all the way through the whole Old Testament, at least in one way or another. They thought he was the one that had promised, the one that was coming, but Rome had crucified him. And remember, they didn't believe he was going to arise. When he died, so did their hope for the nation. Of course, Jesus really was the one they had waited for. And by the way, the one that the Jewish people are still waiting for, still looking for. Amen. He was the one who would redeem Israel. But they're not speaking here of redeeming and redemption like we think of it as the salvation of an individual soul. They were looking for redemption for the nation. They were looking for somebody to conquer Rome and overthrow the oppression of the Roman Empire and restore Israel to her former glory. And yes, he will do that. But this wasn't the time. Notice what he says, verse 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? See, when Jesus came to earth the first time, he spent 33 and a half years here. So far as we know, he worked with his stepfather Joseph in the carpentry business. He astounded the great doctors of the law in the temple when he was 12 years old, but he already knew everything about the Bible because he wrote it, or he authored it anyway. He taught in the synagogues. He healed and delivered people by miracles. And he raised people from the dead, including himself. But in that first advent, he really came to do one thing. He came to die. Because that was the only way Israel or anybody else could ever be redeemed. That that suffering, dying servant that you find in Isaiah chapter 53 wasn't what they were looking for. Yet in verse 26, we see the suffering had to come first and the glory would come later. And certainly it will. But he had to go to Calvary first. And then he had to go back to heaven. But we'll see that they didn't want him to go either place. That's understandable. Yet that was God's plan. And so hopefully what we're going to see tonight, we're going to look at why he had to go. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to study your word tonight, to be fed by the bread of life. Thank you for allowing us to be in your house and in your presence. And as we always ask, Lord, for wisdom and knowledge, understanding and remembrance, let the true teacher, which is the Holy Ghost, come and show us the wonderful truth of your word. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus. So let's turn backwards a little bit to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Here we'll see Jesus beginning to instruct his disciples about things that were about ready to happen, things that were to come. Not way off in the future, but immediately in the future. Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, son Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now the answers that Jesus gets to the question he asks here show something that was true then and is still true today. Everybody in the whole wide world has an opinion of Jesus Christ, but they vary greatly, and very, very few get it right. Even though the answer that you get to that question determines your eternal future. Wycliffe says this, 
The variety of opinions which, which men hold concerning Jesus show that although many connected him with Messianic prophecy, none regarded him properly. John the Baptist was the predicted forerunner. Elijah was to precede the day of the Lord. Jeremiah, that's mentioned here, was expected by some to appear and to restore the ark that he had supposedly hidden. Now that was a legend. So just like it is today, people look at legends, they look at folklore, they look at stories, they look at misinterpretations of prophecy. And so they all come up with a hundred different answers. But then, Jesus gets the answer that he's looking for. Look at verse 15. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now the name Christ comes from the Greek word, and it means anointed, or anointed one. It's kind of the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah which means anointed one as well. Peter got it right. Jesus was the one. The one and the only one. Chosen by God to fulfill his entire plan, but not only the chosen one, but the actual Son of God. And again, the only Son of God. A lot of people believe that Jesus existed, and they make him an extraordinary man, an extraordinary historical figure, but they just don't buy the Son of God part. But later on, in John chapter 19 and verse 7, that was actually one of the legal charges that was leveled against Jesus by the Jewish leaders. They said to Pontius Pilate, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. The Expositor Bible points out, though, that charge was false. He didn't make himself into the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Amen. Jesus tells Peter very plainly here, you've had a revelation straight from God the Father. What a wonderful thing. It had been revealed to him who Jesus really, really is. Yes. In verse 18, Jesus uses a play on, on words, sort of, with Peter's name. But that name's kind of an interesting thing. Back in, in John chapter 1, at the beginning, a meeting occurs between Jesus and Peter. What happens is John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he made his great declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two of John's followers were there at the time and the Bible says they became, when they met Jesus, they became followers of Jesus, became his disciples. And one of those was a man named Andrew, who was Peter's brother. And when Andrew met Jesus, he went and got Peter and told him, come see, we found the Messiah. And Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. And John 1 and 42 says, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. You see, Peter wasn't born Peter. He was born Simon. His parents named him Simon, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Simeon. He was named after one of the original 12 sons of Israel. The names Cephas and, and Peter were given to him by the Lord later on. Both of those names mean rock in a, in a fashion. Peter is from the Greek word Petros. And Jesus kind of uses his name there, this new name, to speak of the work he would do building his church on the rock. Now, of course, the rock the church is built on is Christ himself. That's why the true church will never fall. Remember the parable that Jesus told, the houses were built on the rock and on the sand, and he tells us what's built on the rock will stand every storm. Amen. And certainly it will. 
Of course, Peter wasn't the church's foundation. Christ is. That word rock there in verse 18, that's a slightly different word. It's from the Greek word petra. Strong's Concordance defines it this way. The one with Peter's name is a piece of rock. But that, that word translated rock there that means Christ, that is a massive rock. He's a big rock. But it's a wonderful thing that Jesus did in giving Peter this name. It's a great compliment because rocks are firm and steady and stable. And Peter, as we'll see a little bit tonight, he would go on to prove that he was anything but that. He was not steady or stable. He, he was a wild card all, most of his time, most of his life. But Jesus gave him that name for a reason. You see, later on, Peter would be used greatly by the Lord. He got to write two books of the Bible. He wrote 5% of the books of the Bible. Remember, I think it's like 3% of the books of the Bible. But the Expositor's Bible says this name change. It's kind of like when Jacob's name in the Old Testament was changed from Jacob the supplanter, all those devious things that he was to Israel, the prince with God. The name change shows what Jesus can do in a life and totally recreate it. The gates of hell that are mentioned there refers to the power of death. The word hell is the Greek word Hades. We've all heard that. The abode of the dead, if you will. The gate or the entrance to that world is death. But the power of death couldn't prevail against Christ. Death is the result of sin, and he had no sin. He subjected himself to death in our behalf, but it never had any hold on him, which was proved by the fact that he arose from the dead. But remember... His resurrection, his resurrection was only the very first one. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23 says this, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they which are Christ said his coming. Because he lives, we will live also. Death is not going to win. Its power can't prevail against Christ, and it can't prevail against his church. Wycliffe says keys... Keys to the kingdom, their keys represent the authority to open doors. That's what you do with a key. In this case, the door to the kingdom of God. It would be Peter who on the day of Pentecost would open it for the Jewish people as he preached to them the first sermon on, Pen on the day of Pentecost. And later on to the Gentiles because it was Peter also that preached to Cornelius the centurion who was the first Gentile to get saved. And then we also see that, that, that those keys are given to all believers now not just Peter anymore but all believers now as well as the authority that's spoken of in verse 19 there the binding and loosing but we do have to realize that authority doesn't mean that we're anything we've just been given the privilege to use the name of Jesus that's where the authority is in verse 20 it kind of seems an odd thing Jesus tells him don't, not to tell anybody else that he was Christ or the anointed one later of course they were instructed to tell the world, and so they did. But at this time, he had been rejected by the nation, so they wouldn't announce him any further until the day of Pentecost. But what great things Jesus was telling Peter here. He was praising him and telling him, man, you got a great revelation. And then almost immediately, everything kind of goes south. Look at verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. 
But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus knows what's about to happen, and he's trying to prepare his disciples for it. This shows his incredible love for them. Facing what he was facing, his concern was for them. And he knew this wouldn't be well received. They didn't understand. Remember, they weren't looking for the suffering Messiah. They wanted the conquering one. And Peter, just as, just as in the last passage, Peter was the first one to jump right up and spoke, and he meant what he said. Peter was seriously determined Jesus was not going to suffer and die. And we'll see momentarily that he acts, he acts on the statement he made here. But notice the strong terms that Jesus answers Peter with. It must have shocked Peter all of a sudden to turn around and say that to him. And probably shocked the other disciples too. But he said what he said for a reason. Let's turn over a little back to the book of Luke, chapter 4. We'll kind of see that. A little more turning tonight, I think, than we're used to. But Luke chapter 4. Now in this chapter, this is at the beginning of, of Christ's ministry, and Jesus was led, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where Satan would tempt him for 40 days. 40, of course, is the Bible number of testing and probation. Jesus passed the test completely, whereas men generally fail it completely. But we want to see one of the things that he was tempted with in particular. Luke 4, look at verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all will be thine. Now, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world. And since Adam, since Adam and Eve fell to sin, and he certainly does have control over the vast majority of the people in the world. Everybody who's not born again. Yeah. But Wycliffe points out the deception of this promise. You know, you could rule the world if you worship me. The very fact of him having to worship Satan to get the world would mean that Satan was really in charge. Yeah. It's the same lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's the same lie he still tells people today. Satan still promises people riches and fame and power, and he can deliver that. But those who would have the world at their feet have to bow at his feet to get it. That's right. It's a deception. But there was something really far more nefarious here going on than just this promise, this lie. What Satan was really trying to do here was to get Jesus to take the kingdom without going to the cross. You rule the world and you don't have to die, I'll give it to you. He was trying to get Jesus to bypass the will of God. Now remember, Jesus is God, and he never stopped being God. Therefore, he's already the ruler of the universe. He didn't need anybody to give that to him. Amen. But the fact that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe Amen. does not and cannot save anybody. For that, he had to go to the cross. Amen. That was the true temptation here, to avoid that suffering. So notice what Jesus tells in verse 8. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. Shalt thou serve word for word exactly what he told Peter. And the reason for that is because Peter has suggested the very same thing. Don't they not go to the cross? Peter, Peter's motivation would have been way different from Satan's, of course. Peter was probably speaking from his love for Christ, and he didn't want to lose him. 
None of the disciples did. Nonetheless, suggesting that he not go to Calvary was serious enough. I mean, that's a violation of the whole plan of God. So it was serious enough that Jesus had to make that point very clearly, and that's why he said what he said to Peter. A lot of people today still have the same problem. We used to call them modernists. The modernist church still downplays the cross. They still would rather talk about love or unity or prosperity or whatever else. But the fact is a crossless church is a false religion. So let's go back over to Matthew, now to chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is after the, after the last Passover meal, just before Jesus was crucified. Matthew 26. And look at verse 31. Then Jesus, Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night, before the cockcrow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise so said all the disciples. That prophecy in verse 31 is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 7. But here again the Lord tells him plainly he will be smitten, referring to the crucifixion and that he would rise again. But still, they couldn't accept either. And Peter, as usual, is the one who speaks right up. I'll never be offended. I'll go with you even to death. And notice they all joined Peter. They all were thinking the same thing. George Williams says, we see in verse 31, they would forsake him. But in verse 32, we see they would never, he would never forsake them. We'll see momentarily, this boast that they made here only lasted a few hours. As we, and we'll see that as we go now into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is a familiar story, but we need to see something important in what happens. Look at verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, as we said, Jesus never stopped being God, but... In his earthly ministry, he put aside the privileges and the power of that while he was here. What he did at Calvary, he did as a man. It had to be that way because he was dying for man. And so as a man, he goes off alone to pray, knowing full well what's about to happen. Nobody will ever be able to understand what he went through during that time. Amen. Luke's gospel says that an angel was dispatched from heaven to strengthen him. During that time, he might not have been able to make it through it otherwise. Amen. But in verse 40 there, we see the boast of the disciples begin to fall apart. A minute ago, they were going to die with him. Now they can't even stay awake. This shows us the great principle, though, that in our flesh, in our own ability, we can do nothing at all. Exactly. That's right. The Bible says the temptation they're warned of here is the one that would come in just a matter of minutes. They would be tempted to forsake the Lord. 
and they were all fed up. Verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Right as let us be going, behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Notice in verse 39, he asked if it were possible, let the cup pass from him. By verse 42, that part of the request was gone. He's just saying, if it can't be any other way, then I will be done. Matthew Henry says that Adam rebelled against God's will in a garden. Christ surrendered to God's will in a garden. It's also worth noting that Adam's sin was at a tree, and Christ's redemption was also at a tree. Jesus, in minute detail, reversed everything that happened at the fall. He fixed it all. He didn't miss anything. But we see here, Jesus surrendered completely to God's will. Amen. And our title tonight is why he had to go, but it's, it's in reference to what had to happen for God's plan to be fulfilled. This is not to say that Jesus didn't have any choice in the matter. And we'll see that momentarily. But here, thankfully, he chose to go. Look at verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now here's the betrayal that Jesus spoke of in verse 46. Judas turned him in. We, we all know that. But one of the disciples tries to fight. Now, all four of the Gospels record this part of the story, and from the other accounts, we can get more detail about it. John tells us the man's name who lost his ear there was Malchus, and it also tells us that Peter was the one who had the sword. But Luke also shows us that Peter wasn't alone in his sentiment. When Judas and them came, Luke records that all, all the disciples, not just Peter, had said to the Lord, shall we smite with the sword? They were all thinking to fight. Peter was just the one who went ahead and tried. Notice he's always the one that jumps right in. But he was still thinking the same way as before when Jesus rebuked him. He was still, I'm not going to let this happen to you. They still didn't understand. Jesus will address that in a moment, but there's one more thing to notice. Luke's account tells us, and I think he's the only one that records this, Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Yeah. It shows us something amazing about the Lord and what he came to do. Malchus was among the mob that came to arrest Jesus, and make no mistake, they were out to see him dead. Yet Jesus turned around and healed him. This shows us God's love for his enemies. Amen. His last miracle before his death was performed for somebody who came with a mob to try to kill him. Yeah. And that was the same love that claimed Calvary. All men, the Bible says, are sinners. All men were in rebellion and were God's enemy. Yeah. Yet his purpose was to heal, not to destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 52. Then, Jesus, then said Jesus unto him, Put up thy sword again into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? So again, Jesus has to address Peter's folly, or the disciples' folly, and they were still thinking and acting in the flesh, which can't ever accomplish anything good. 
Jesus would not sanction violence from them, nor did he require their help. Consider for a moment what he says in verse 53. A legion was a unit of the Roman army. It was made up of 6,000 soldiers. So if you do the math, what Jesus is saying here, that at his request, more than 72,000 angels would be dispatched from heaven, and they would have had drawn swords, and they'd have been ready for war. Second Kings 19 tells us the story, one of my favorites, the story of the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian army back in the days of good King Hezekiah. They came against Jerusalem, and Hezekiah knew what to do. He prayed, and the Lord answered him. The Bible records, and most of you know this story, God sent an angel, one angel, and that angel came and killed 185,000 troops in one night. So what could 72,000 angels do? It's my belief that if he had called for them, they would have wiped the Roman Empire off the map to get him out of there. We've spoken tonight of Jesus' love for his disciples and his love for his enemies. Here is his love for us. He could have stopped this at any time, but he didn't. Verse 54. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In the same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. There we see in verse 56, there came the temptation for the disciples to forsake him, and they all failed. Ending this great boast that they made earlier, but here we also see the reason that he continued, that he had to go. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. He had to go if all the word of God, the prophecies, and God's plan were going to be fulfilled. So let's turn a little further over to the book of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13, here we go backwards in time just a little bit. We're kind of telling the same story from two different angles for a little bit here. At the same time that Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for his going to the cross, he also began to tell them of his going away again after that. Chapter 13 here records the last Passover feast that Jesus would observe with the disciples, and really that was the last Passover that was sanctioned under the Mosaic Law because the next day Jesus fulfilled the Passover feast. He died as the ultimate Passover lamb, and after his death there wouldn't need to be any more Passover lambs. He paid the final price for all sin, for all people, for all time. After that feast, then, and on through about chapter 17 here, Jesus gives his disciples final instructions, and he tells them what's going to happen, but yet he also gives them great comfort as well. And part of this is how he, and part of this, the things that he tells them is how he would have to go again. He would have to go away again. John chapter 13, look at verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, and that's Judas, having left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while am I with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, Whether I go, ye cannot come. So now say I unto you. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. 
Jesus answered him, Will thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow, till thou hast denied me thrice. So this is just after Judas left the Passover supper and headed out into the night to effect his betrayal of the Lord. His Father's Bible says, Christ glorified God in death, and God glorified Christ in resurrection. Here Jesus tells him he's going away. He had told the Jews back in chapter 7 and 8 of this book, while teaching in the temple, this same thing, I'm going to go away, but you can't go where I'm going. But to them, the message had a great difference. Chapter 8 and verse 21, he told the Pharisees, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, ye cannot come. Amen. In verse 24, he explained that a little further. If you believe not that I am he, that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. He was telling them he was going back to heaven, but because they rejected him, they wouldn't get to go with him. They wouldn't get to follow him. Far different is the message to the disciples here. Because he promises them in verse 36, you can't go now, but you'll follow me later. They'll get to go. That's the plain stark difference between accepting Christ and rejecting Christ. You can follow him to heaven or not. So he's predicted two hard things here. That he's going to go away and Peter's going to have this awful episode where he denies him. But as soon as he says that, then he goes right on and begins to give them great comfort as we see in the next chapter. Even in the tribulations and the trials, even when it's our failure, and it usually is, there is comfort always to be found in the Word of God if we'll listen. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now in this chapter, there are several different topics that he talks about, several words of comfort that he gives to disciples. And the first is the promise of heaven. The expositor's Bible notes that in verse 2, what it's saying here is heaven's a big place. So big it's beyond our ability to even comprehend it. It's fun to imagine. Every saint who has ever lived from Abel in the book of Genesis all the way to the last saint to get saved during the tribulation time has his own dwelling place there. Don't know what it's going to look like, but Jesus himself is the architect of it. He is personally preparing this place for us. Amen. And that statement there, if it were not so, I would have told you, that's, that makes it, that emphasizes it, that makes it a personal guarantee. It is their waiting. But then it gets even better. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And here, of course, he's speaking of the rapture of the church. He had to go away to prepare the place. But just as he was going away physically, he will return physically. And that's an important part of that doctrine. This statement and prophecies about the rapture in places like 1 Thessalonians 4, these things aren't metaphors. They're not allegories like some have suggested. These are literal statements. Wycliffe says Jesus had left him, but one day he would return to the earth in the same visible, glorious way in which he had departed. The expectation of the bodily return of Christ is central to Christian faith. Back in Luke 24, after Jesus had appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, we read at the beginning of tonight, it goes on to tell how when they went back after that and told the disciples what had happened to him. Affirmed for them, we've seen him, he's alive. But it goes on to record right while they were telling the disciples that story, Jesus appeared again. But they still didn't get it. 
chapter 24, 37 to 40 says this, But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that I design myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. In our in modern times, we have an expression that we use for somebody that, that looks like they've been shocked by something. You say, you look like you've seen a ghost. Well, so it was with the disciples. They thought they had seen a ghost, but Jesus makes it clear to him here. He wasn't a ghost. He was physically appearing in his glorified body. That was his state after he rose from the dead, and still is. He physically ascended to heaven, and he's physically going to come back. Look, before we go on, look at verse 12. There's one other thing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I, that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall I do, because I go unto my Father. And Jesus goes on through the rest of the chapter, giving them great promises and great comfort. He tells them whatever they ask in his name, he'll do it. He gives them the promise of the coming of the Spirit. And finally, the promise of his peace. Look down to verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it has come to pass, you might believe. Notice this chapter kind of closes the same way it began. Let not your heart be troubled. The peace that he gave to them would transcend anything the world could have to offer. It isn't just a temporary thing. For the good times, his peace would be deep in their hearts and can be deep in ours. That would carry them through everything that was to come. So he had to go to prepare the place for us. We want to look at one more reason. Turn over maybe just one page to chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God a service. And these things will they have done will they do unto you because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I go my way unto him that sent me. And none of them asketh me, Whither goest thou? Here Jesus really doesn't mince any words. He's telling them there's going to be rough times ahead. And certainly there were. History tells us all of the disciples except John died as martyrs for the Lord. Only John died of old age. And he hadn't told them all these things earlier because he was still there. But now they needed to know because he was going to leave. Back in chapters 13 and 14, they had asked him, where are you going, Lord? Now they weren't asking that anymore. The Expositor Bible says this is because now they were beginning to understand. Now he's explained this all to them. Yet they were still very sorry at the prospect of what he told them, and understandably so. But there's another reason. You see, he had to go with the verse 6. Because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus' earthly ministry was meant to have an end. He had accomplished everything that he was sent to do. And so he would return to his Father and start building that place for us. But the end of Jesus' earthly ministry would be followed 
by the ministry of the comfort of the Holy Spirit who would come in a whole new way than he had in the Old Testament. He reproves and convicts the world of sin, the Bible says. It's the Spirit that convicts the sinner and draws him to Christ. He guides the believer into the truth of the Word. He glorifies Christ. And this promise began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and it continues still today. Jesus never did stop baptizing believers in the Holy Ghost. But what a difference that made. Turn over to chapter 20. Now this, where we're reading now, takes place in the evening on Resurrection Day. Chapter 20 and verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said, saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said unto them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now this is likely the same appearance that we talked about before when the two came back from Emmaus. We're telling the disciples that it may be the very same appearance. But notice two things here. First, the doors are shut. They're sequestered away in this room for fear. And notice when Jesus appears, he says the same thing to them as he did in chapter 14, peace be unto you. And then again in verse 22, we see the promise of the Spirit coming. Now, let's turn over to Acts 2 and see the fulfillment of the promise. Now, we know this story. Every good Pentecostal knows what, what happens in Acts chapter 2. But we want to see something in particular. Of course, the Holy Ghost comes on the day of Pentecost into the temple, fills the house, fills everybody gathered there, and they spoke with other tongues. And the other tongues were, in fact, the languages of the many people gathered at Jerusalem for the feast. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and, and Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. And people couldn't understand what was happening. And as always, there's always some that don't want to understand what's happening. They have no interest in the things of God, and so they just said, well, they suggested they were drunk. Peter, of course, went right on to put a stop to that. In verse 14, the Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit, will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And as we know, Peter then went on to preach. This was the first church service of the Christian church. Peter was the first preacher, and the first sermon garnered 3,000 converts when they gave the invitation. But notice what Peter says in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, 
which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands that crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. What we see here, what we want to see is the contrast. 49 days before this, they were sequestered and locked in a room and the doors were all shut for fear of the Jews, the Bible says, because they thought, well, they crucified the Lord, they're going to come after us next. But now, Peter is openly standing there right in the middle of the temple looking people right in the eye and saying, you murdered your own Messiah. Notice now they're not afraid anymore. They're not hiding. That's the difference that Pentecost made. But Jesus had also told them, remember back in John 14 and 12, believers would do greater works than even he had done while he was on the earth. The Spirit's coming allowed for that to happen too, those greater works. Matthew Henry says Christ's departure was necessary for, to the Comforter's coming. Sending the Spirit was to be the fruit of Christ's death, which was his going away. His bodily presence could only be in one place at a time. But his Spirit is everywhere, in all places at all times. See, Christ's earthly ministry was basically limited to where they could walk to. But after Pentecost, the gospel went all around the world. Those greater works. Couldn't have been easy for the disciples to see Jesus go to Calvary, and it wasn't easy for him to go either. Nor could it have been easy to accept that he was going to leave. It couldn't have been easy for them to stand on that mountain and see him ascend and be gone from him. In fact, they were still asking just before the Lord ascended in Acts chapter 1, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still looking for him to overthrow Rome. But he had to go, you see. He had to go to Calvary so we could be redeemed. He had to go to heaven so he could prepare that place for us. He had to return to the Father so he could send back the Spirit. But him going doesn't preclude the other half of what was said. But surely as he left, he came back. He died, but he arose. And he went to heaven, but he'll also return. Betty Jean Robinson got it right. He went all the way and did it all for me and for you. And Andre Crouch got it right as well. Soon and very soon, we are going to see you again. Amen. Amen. This is your anchor, William McLaughlin. And I want to wish and pray that God's blessing and mercy be with you through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.